Amen. Normally, this is the point where I would dismiss our children for kids' crew, but because it is the fourth Sunday of the month, they are going to remain with us in worship today. It's kind of our pattern. Three Sundays out of the month, we have kids' crew, but on the fourth Sunday, we, we stay together. And so I'm excited for us to study the Word together in the book of Esther this morning. If the kids did not pick up a copy of what we call the Children's Worship Bulletin, these are the white bulletins that were available at, at the entrances when you came in this morning, then it would be totally appropriate for them to go and, and grab one of those. Now they're on these pedestals to either side of the stage here. If they want to do that, because there are some great helps there for them to engage with the message and the text this morning as we study a passage of Scripture in Esther chapter 4. Now, Esther is a really interesting book in the Bible, as we will see together. And what I'm going to do this morning is offer a summary of sorts of the story of Esther from the entire book of Esther, but also we're going to focus particularly on Esther chapter 4, verse 14, because it's really the key text, I believe, the, the hinge of sorts that helps us to understand what's happening in the story of Esther as all of this unfolds. Before we dive into that uh, too deeply, I, I want you to think just momentarily about a time in life when you've been faced with a big decision. There was some, some choice that you, that you were weighing and, and, and the consequence of that moment, the consequence of that decision, right? Maybe it was related to something about school, where you were going to go, what you were going to study. Maybe it was a choice about a job. Do I take this job or that? Do I accept this promotion? Do I, do I, do I move? Do, do I want to work for this company or, or a different one? Maybe it was a choice about where to live. Maybe it was something that was related to family. We all go through those situations and circumstances in life where we have to make choices related to our children, choices related to uh, perhaps parents or caring for other loved ones. Life is full of choices. That's the point that I'm wanting to make. And oftentimes, in those moments where we're weighing the really big choices, we have the awareness that that what I do here really matters because it's not just going to affect me, it's going to affect others as well. It's not just going to have an effect on my life, but maybe someone else that I love, someone else who's close to me, someone who is dear to me, that there will be consequences related to this decision. And so I'm not just choosing based on what I want. I'm trying to choose what is best and what will have the, the, the best benefit, the, what will offer the most blessing and the best and most good for others. Well, Esther is faced with a very similar choice and perhaps somewhat unlike us, and I don't mean to say all of us, but many of the choices that we've just thought about, literally Esther could say that the choices that she were faced with, she was faced with in Esther in this chapter, literally the the, the life and death of an entire race of people hinged upon what Esther would choose to do, at least in as much as Esther's ability to affect. Now, we 
No, even her cousin Mordecai points to the fact that God may well raise up another. But Esther is uniquely positioned here, and that's a big part of what we're going to talk about and dig into this morning as we walk through this. The, the choices that we face, how God is at work. But if you know much about the book of Esther, you know that one of the things that's really interesting about the book of Esther is that throughout the entire book of Esther, God is not mentioned at all. In fact, if you read through the book of Esther, there's no reference to prayer. There's no reference to God. There's no reference to even any, any real sense of worship that happens. And so how does this book that seems maybe in some ways overly absent of God, maybe secularized in some ways, maybe void of all the trappings of worship and religion and how does this book end up in the Bible? Well, the, the answer to that is that it's, it's a literary device that the author of the book of Esther uses to get our attention. See, when we begin to really dig in and study, what we find is that it's the very, it's the very omission of these instances or references to God. It's, it, it's a purposeful, I believe, omission of these direct references to God that cause us as we read the book to think, well, where is God in all of this? How is God working in all of this? And if you've ever read the book of Esther and thought those questions, now you're tapping into the heart of what I think the author wants us to understand. Because it's in questioning, how is God working in these circumstances that we begin to think, how is God working in my life? Where do I see the signs, the evidences of God at work in my own life, in my own story? In fact, you've heard no doubt of uh, C.H. Spurgeon, the famous preacher C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and he preached a message on the, the story or the book of Esther that he delivered on November the 1st, 1874. So many years ago, Spurgeon preached a message on the book of Esther. And I want you to listen to these words because I think Spurgeon nails it with what he says about the, the, the very makeup of the book of Esther. Spurgeon said, The Lord intended by the narrative of Esther's history to set before us a wonderful instance of his providence, that when we had viewed it with interest and pleasure, we might praise his name and then go on to acquire the habit of observing his hand in other histories, especially in our own lives. Now, if you've ever read much of Spurgeon, you know that Spurgeon writes and talks in a way that's, that's, that's very, uh, well, it doesn't make a lot of sense today because of the, the language and the wording, but he was, he was a gifted preacher and, and really good with his use of words. And so let's, if, if, if I read that and you thought, what? Essentially what Spurgeon says is the intentional omission of any direct reference to the Lord is a purposeful, a purposeful thing that causes us to think, well, if God is at work in these circumstances, how might God be at work in my life, in my circumstance? If God is at work in this way in history, how might God be at work in my story and in my life? You see, the, the great lesson that we see is that God's power is demonstrated through his faithfulness to his promise, even when it seems like that promise might be thwarted. What we read and, and see in the story of Esther is that God is faithful to his promise, even when it seemed like that promise was in danger of being undone. So that when we study the book of Esther, we see that God is active 
even when it seems like he might be absent. Now think on that for just a minute. And think about that in application to your own life, that God is active even when it might seem like he is absent, that he's at work all around us, even in our lives. And that's the point. So let me walk you through just a very brief overview of the story of Esther. I'm not going to read through the text so much as just kind of use the, the, the text as a, as a guide here, okay? And so you begin in Esther chapter 1, and we're introduced to the king, the king of Persia. So this is, we understand when we date all of this, that, that this is dated to, to the reign of King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus was a Persian king. He's commonly known in history today by his Greek name, Xerxes. And in fact, this name, Ahasuerus, is actually a transliteration of his name into the Hebrew language. But his name in the Persian language meant that he was the mighty king. He was the great hero of his people. And so King Xerxes, we know, reigned from 486 to 465 BC. He was a powerful man, a powerful king. In fact, at this point in time, the most powerful. Have you ever, have you ever heard the story of the Spartans and how the Spartans faced the Persians at the pass of Thermopylae? And it was the, the small band of Spartans who stood against the great, uh, the great uh, Persian army and all of that. Well, if you, or that's the movie 300 is based off of that. If you've ever heard that story or seen the movie or anything like that, that king, that Persian king is Xerxes, Xerxes the first. And so this is the king who is a, 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 a very powerful man to say the least. He rules over much of what we would today consider to be North Africa, the Middle East, Palestine, extending even into the lands of sort of like into the, the western part of uh, modern day uh, Central Asia. And so he rules over this this massive, this powerful kingdom. He's a powerful man. And what we find in chapter one is he throws this great feast. And the whole point of the feast is to show his power, to show his authority and his greatness. And toward the end of this feast, by the way, the feast goes on for 180 days. So it's quite the party, half a year long, right? And at the end of this party, the king calls for his queen to come and to make an appearance before all those who are gathered to show her beauty. And his whole point in doing that was really to show his might and his goodness. Well, Queen Vashti refuses. She refuses to appear before the king. The king is infuriated by this, so much so that he deposes her from the throne as queen and issues a royal edict that every man is to be the head or the, the, in charge of his own house and speak his own language in his home. And what follows from that in the days that come is the king begins a search for a new queen. And so, Throughout his kingdom, there is, there is this search to find the most beautiful woman. And the way that they do this, I'm going to work my best to keep this pretty PG in the way that I describe this, okay? But the way that they do this is they go throughout all the land, they find beautiful young women, and they bring them to be a part 
of a harem. And the way that this works is there are actually two harems. There is the harem for all of the women who have not yet been to see the king, and then a harem that the women would go to after their time with the king, the second harem. And so every one of these beautiful young women that they, that they scour the land for enter into the first harem. And one by one, they each appear before the king. And after they appear before the king, then they are sent to the second harem. And should the king decide uh, to ever call back any of those young women, that would be a sign of his abundant favor. But what happens in all of the instances, save one that we know of, is that the young women appear before the king, and then he moves on to the next. One by one, he's just working his way through this group of beautiful women. But one young woman so encaptivates the, the king that he calls for her again. And he is so delighted in her that he makes her his queen. That young woman is Esther. And what we learn through the story is that Esther is a Jew. This is all taking place at a time when many Jews who were captured and carried off during the Babylonian conquest have returned to their homeland, to Jerusalem. In fact, a lot of Bible scholars believe that the events of the book of Esther take place around the time of Ezra chapters 6 and 7. If you've read through the book of Ezra in our kind of in our, our Bible reading plan, right? So this is happening as the work is taking place to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But there were many who did not return. And Esther and her cousin Mordecai, who is raising her as though she were his daughter, they are a part of the group that did not return to Jerusalem, but instead are living in the land of Susa. Susa was the capital, the winter capital of the Persian Empire. And Esther becomes the queen. Not only does she become queen, her cousin Mordecai uncovers a plot to take the king's life, an assassination attempt on the king's life. And so Mordecai shares this news with Esther, who in the news is shared with the, the king, and the king's life is spared. But we also are introduced to the, the villain of the story. His name is Haman. Haman is an Agagite. Now, that means that he is a descendant of the Canaanites. And so already when you know that much, Mordecai is a Jew, Can, uh, Haman is a Canaanite, you see the tension that's building between these two peoples who are historically from rival people groups, rival, rival, rival nations, rival areas. Haman comes up with a plan to have all of the Jews in the entire Persian army killed. Genocide. He conceives a plan for genocide and, and contrives this, this, this means by which he convinces the king to sign an edict declaring this to be true, which the king does. And so now a royal decree has been issued that all the Jews would be killed on the 13th of Adar. That's the, the last month of the year. And so a plan, a plot has been hatched. A plan has been put in place to kill all of the Jews. And Mordecai goes to Esther, his cousin, who's like a daughter to him, and says, Esther, you've got to do something. You've got to speak up. You've got to stand for what's for your people, because if you don't, we will die. And that's when we come to this particular point in the book of Esther. So let's read together Esther chapter 4, verse 14, 
And listen to the words that Mordecai says to Esther here. He says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. So Mordecai is convinced that God will remain faithful to his promise and deliver his people. That's an important point here. He says, But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The point that Mordecai makes to Esther is this. Esther, God has has brought you to this moment. God has allowed you to be elevated to to the position that you are in for such a time as this. And when we read those words and the power behind those words, the the point is that we would think, not only of what God is doing in Esther's life, but how God is working in our lives. Let me go on to tell you more about the story of Esther. If you keep reading, what you, what you find out is that Esther decides that she's going to act. And so Esther conceives a plan that she's going to appear before the king. You may think, well, that's okay. So that's what a queen should do, right, in that moment. But there was a law, there was a Persian law that no one was to appear before the king unless they were summoned by the king. And so Esther knows that if she goes before the king without being called, she is taking her, her life into her own hands. That, sh- that the, the punishment for such an action would be death. And the only exception is when you would be, if you were to appear before the king, and if he were to extend his golden scepter to you, that was a sign that he would allow you to be in his presence. And so Esther bravely decides to appear before the king, knowing that if the king didn't want her to do this, if he felt somehow slighted or if he felt somehow disrespected by her action, that he could just have her killed and find another queen. He's proven already that he's not above such a thing, that he's not above deposing a queen and finding another. But Esther acts bravely, and God works through those circumstances. The king extends the golden scepter, and he says to Esther, Esther, what is it that you want? Ask anything you would up to half of my kingdom. You, it may be yours. And Esther's simple request is, would the king and Haman come to a dinner, a banquet that I would prepare in your honor? And so they do. And at that banquet, the king again says to Esther, Esther, ask anything you would up to half my kingdom, and it'll be yours. Esther says again, my, my request is that you and Haman would come again tomorrow night to another dinner. And so the suspense builds. Well, what happens in between, between the first night, the first dinner, and the second, is that Haman sees Mordecai and he's enraged. And Haman says to his wife that he's so angry. How can he ever be fully respected so long as Mordecai lives? Because Mordecai will not bow down to worship Haman. And so what Haman does is he instructs that a 50 foot tall gallows would be built upon which, upon which uh, Mordecai would be Hung. But what you need to understand about the Persian practice is this isn't a gallows where they would be hanged by a rope the way that we think it. Essentially, this, is, this gallows is a, a tall spike that, upon which the, the person would be impaled, physically impaled on this tall spike. And so Haman's, Haman's command is that a 50-foot tall, or a 50-cubit, I should say, tall gallows would be built and that, the, that Mordecai might be 
impaled upon this spike. That same night in his sleep, the king is restless and disturbed. And so to comfort him, he instructs that the, that the history of his people be brought and that it, w- it would be read to him from the history of his kingdom and his greatness. And lo and behold, what is it that they read to him this very same night? They read to him from the history of the time when Mordecai discovered the plot to kill the king and reported it and the king's life was preserved. And the king realizes, I've never done anything to honor this man who saved my life. And so the very next morning, he instructs Haman to place his ring upon Mordecai's hand and to lead Mordecai around the city, proclaiming this is what is to be done for anyone who honors the king's life. How humiliating for Haman that he has to honor, publicly honor and defend the very man that he seeks to kill. It's also that same evening at the second banquet where the king and Haman appear before Esther. The same request is made. Esther, ask anything that you want. Esther says to the king, king, there has been a plot to take my life and not only my life, but the life of my entire people. And the king says, what are you talking about? Who has done such a thing? And Esther says, Haman is the one and she, and she tells that it was the plot, the edict, that Haman convinced the king that would, that would ultimately cost Esther her own life, being that she was a Jew. The king is so furiated, infuriated that he gets up the, from the dinner and he goes to his royal garden to just kind of stew in his anger. And after a time, he comes back to Esther's palace. What he finds when he returns is that Haman is pleading before Esther for his life, but he's pleading in such a way that it, literally the text says that he falls upon the couch, that, which is a, a euphemism of sorts, that, that is meant to say that it looks as though he is trying to take advantage of or that he's trying, that he's trying to physically coerce Esther in a way. And the king is infuriated all the more. So he, he instructs that Haman is to be killed on the same gallows, the same spike that he had built to kill Mordecai. And that's, that's the end of Haman, right? The, the, he is, he's killed by being hung on the gallows. As the story goes on, what we find is that Mordecai and Esther are able to work together with the king's command and under the king's blessing to sort of undo the plot that Haman had put into place. Now, they, they aren't able to reverse the previous edict because a part of the Persian rule was once the king has issued decree that no one can reverse the decree. So the decree stands that the Jews are to be killed on the 13th of Adar. But Mordecai and Esther convince the king to issue another rival decree that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves and to take the life of anyone who seeks to take their own life. And so this is what happens. The day comes, the Jews preserve their life through, through fighting and, 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 and preserving, literally through defending themselves. And what we see is in the final chapter of the book of Esther, a feast, a festival is instituted to inaugurate all of this, a festival that's known as Purim. And Purim actually comes from the Hebrew word for dice. It sounds sort of like our word for pure, but it's the plural word in the Hebrew language for the word dice because when, when uh, 
the plan was uh, initially hatched by Haman to do away with the Jews, he, he rolled the dice and the day that it landed upon was the day that he chose for the Jews to be killed. What an incredible story, right? What an incredible uh, an unfolding of all of these events. There's one, there's one uh, pastor and author whose name is Mark Dever, and listen to these words because this is what he says about all of the coincidences in the book of Esther that aren't really coincidences, right? When you read this story and you see these events unfolding and you think, this isn't just coincidence, right? That all of these things unfold the way that they do. We, we see it obviously it is the hand of God on Esther. He writes, Esther just happens to be Jewish and she just happens to be beautiful. Esther just happens to be favored by the king. Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against Esther, uh, the king's life. A report of this just happens to be writ in, written in the king's chronicles. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai does not kneel down before him, and he just happens to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. Haman, when he plots the revenge, the dice just happens to indicate that the date for exacting revenge is to be put off for a year. Esther just happens to get the king's approval when she appears before him and just happens to put off her request for another day. Her deferral just happens to send Haman out before Mordecai one more time, which just happens to cause Haman to recount uh, this, the, the instances of Mordecai with his friends. They in turn just happen to encourage him to build a scaffold, uh, a spike upon which he's to be impaled. So Haman just happens to be excited to approach the king early the next morning. It just so happens that the previous night, the mighty king could not command a moment's sleep. And he just happened to have a book brought to him that recounted Mordecai's deeds. He then just happened to ask whether Mordecai has been rewarded, which his attendants happened to know the answer. Simply for a moment, consider the fact that Mordecai happened to not have been rewarded for saving the king's life. How unusual this must have been. Someone who can't save the king's life is never rewarded. I wonder if Mordecai ever chafed under that. Doesn't he realize what I did for him? Well, it all just happened. Haman happens to approach the king just when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. And later on, the king happens to return to the queen just when Haman happens to be pleading with Esther in a way that can be misconstrued. The gallows that Haman built for Mordecai just happens to be ready when King Xerxes wants to hang Haman. You see, again and again and again, we read in the story of Esther, what appears to be a set of coincidences is actually a series of circumstances that God is working through to prove that even when it may seem like God is absent, he's active. And so as we look at the story of Esther this morning with that idea in mind, that God is active even when he seems absent, let me, let me point to some, some things that I think we learn through Esther's story. Now, this is one of those sermons. This happens a lot with these Old Testament sermons, right? There's a lot of backstory, a lot of, a, a lot of events that I'm trying to give you, and then we get to this point, and then it's just boom, boom, boom through the sermon points, right? And this happens to be another sermon like that, where there's a lot of backstory, a lot of setup, and now the points, but I want you to hear these points and I want this to resonate with you because even as I've mentioned already, the whole, the whole idea in all of this is to see how God is working in our lives even when it seems like God may be silent, even when it seems like, Lord, I don't know what you're up to. 
So the first lesson we learn in Esther's life is that the Lord uniquely positions people to accomplish his ultimate purpose. Esther is uniquely positioned to accomplish God's ultimate purpose. She's the queen. Who else but the queen might have access to the king the way that Esther does? Who else might be able to win the favor of the king should they appear before him even though they're not summoned? Clearly, as Mordecai points out to Esther in Esther chapter 4, Esther, who knows, but that God has raised you up for such a time as this. Esther is uniquely positioned, unlike any other. That's not just coincidence, right? That's like a, a bright, flashing neon light that says God is doing this in Esther's life. And the point is that you would understand that it's not just in Esther's life, and it's not just in Esther's story, but in our lives as well. God uniquely positions us to accomplish his ultimate purpose. So the people who you work with, the people who you live near, the people that you go to school with, the people in your own family, the people in your community. You are not here by accident. You are not you with all, of your, with all of your history and all of your giftedness and all of your experiences and all of the things that you've gone through by accident. And you might say, oh, but you don't know the brokenness of my past. You don't know the pain of the baggage that I've lived with. You don't know all the things that I've been through. And maybe I don't know all of that, but this much I do know. You're not an accident. And your circumstance is not an accident. And it's not beyond the power of God to use anything and everything in your history for his kingdom and his glory. See, because God uniquely positions people to accomplish his ultimate purpose. So that even when it seems like, how could this possibly benefit the Lord? How could this possibly be used of God? And yet, in any and every circumstance, God is able to accomplish his ultimate purpose when we would yield ourselves, yield our hearts and our lives to him, which really then kind of plays to the very next point, right? You, you want to talk about the baggage, the pain, the, the hardship that you've endured in the past. That really brings us to the second point is that the Lord leverages hardships to display his unlimited power. It may well be that you've been through some really terrible things. And I don't mean to just dismiss that. Hear me. I don't mean to just lift the rug and sweep those things under and say, well, put a smile on. God's going to use it. Listen, the pains that you may have walked through, the hardship, the difficulty, the hurt that you felt, I, I, I'm not speaking dismissively. What I'm saying is that God can use even that. For many years, our church had a recovery ministry, Celebrate Recovery, that is uh, just an incredible ministry that God's used in the, in the lives of, of so many in our congregation. And there was a saying that, that we would often say in recovery ministry that God never wastes a hurt. Now, that doesn't mean that God is the source of every hurt and every pain, but he can use it for his glory. He can leverage it in a way that would show his power in your life. If you would live in a way that's yielded, that's surrendered to him, God will leverage even your hardship. Romans 8, 28, no doubt you've heard of Romans 8, 28 that says God 
works all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That verse is a reminder to us that God will work even through hardships to display his power in our lives when we live in a way that is yielded to, surrendered to his purpose, which then flows directly into the next point. You see how these are sort of like building blocks that are just working brick by brick, case by case, to create this beautiful picture of God's power. The Lord works in ways that we cannot see to bring about his unmerited provision. His unmerited provision, which means unmerited. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's not something that you work for. It's not something that that you achieve Rather, it's something that God gives freely. His provision. What is God's provision? His provision is all the ways that he works in our lives. It's the ways that he provides, most notably of which is Jesus. You see, as we think about the story of Esther, it points us to understand that God is at work even when it seems like he might be absent. He's active. When we look at the story of Esther, we see a story of redemption. That God works through this beautiful young girl to bring about the redemption of his people. What an incredible thing that God can use a royal beauty contest to raise up a queen and preserve the lives of his people. But that's our God that we serve. He can do anything and everything when we live our lives in a way that's yielded to and surrendered to him. And what's more, when we think about God working in that way in Esther's life, it really just points us to God's work in our lives and what we see in our lives is that God brought about our redemption through his son that was not spared on the cross. God brought about our redemption. Our provision is provided by Jesus. You see, Esther, Esther was one of God's people that acted and, and lives were saved. Jesus is God's own son who acted on the cross in a way that would save us from our sin. There are a lot of parallels when you think about them, and maybe they're not explicit or overt in the passage, but it's there. And if we see God at work in Esther's life, then it points us to see God at work in our lives as well. That we can live with God's unmerited provision, meaning God's free gift of grace that he's poured out on us through faith in Jesus. The story of Esther, just like every other story in the Old Testament, just like every other text in the Bible, points us to the goodness of God made available to us in Jesus if we would live for him. That God uniquely positions people to accomplish his ultimate purpose. That God leverages our hardships in order to display his unlimited power and ultimately The Lord works in ways that we cannot see to bring about his unmerited provision. God is at work all around us. Here's what I know to be true, is that God is at work all around you as well. Maybe you're here this morning and and, and there's never been a time that you've surrendered your life to Jesus by faith. Maybe you struggle even because you feel, how can I trust a God when all these things have happened to me? Well, Could it be perhaps this morning that you understand that even in spite of your hardships, God has been working to show his love and his power, his unmerited favor toward you, his free grace that is poured out through Jesus if you would just turn to him in faith. 
You see, even when it seems like God might be absent, he's active. He's at work in our lives so that we would know him and we would trust him by faith. That's the lesson we learned through the life of Esther. And I hope that's the lesson that we would apply to our lives as we, as we seek to walk and live in light of God's truth. And so in a moment, we're gonna move into a time of response. And in our time of response this morning, we're gonna sing a song. And during the time that we sing the song, we offer what we call the invitation. The invitation is, is just this. It's an invitation to trust God by faith and to, and to surrender our lives to him. And today, if, if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, then even as we sing this song, then I would encourage you that you would step out in the aisle and myself and our other staff guys, Brad and Josh, will be standing here at the front and we would love nothing more than to just walk you through a prayer of faith that you would surrender your life to Jesus, that you would trust in his unmerited provision by surrendering your life to Jesus so that you can see God work in your life just as we have seen God work in Esther's life, in our study in this morning's text. God is at work all around us. Will we trust him? Will we surrender our lives to him? Will we receive by faith the grace that he's poured out for us as a gift? My prayer is that you would surrender your life to Jesus today so that you may know God's unmerited provision as you trust in him. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. And as we enter into a moment of prayer, I want to pray that God would speak to our hearts today and that we might respond in faith and obedience to him. Lord, we ask that you would move in our hearts today, move in our midst. Jesus, we see that the story of Esther, just like every other story, is really pointing us to you. Just as all of human history points to you, Jesus, you are the center of our lives. You are the center of history. You are the center of everything, Jesus. And we want our lives to be lived for you and for your glory. And so we ask that you would work even when it seems like you are silent, even when it might seem like you are absent, that you would work to show us that you are active, that you love us, that you pursue us, that we may know you by faith. And so we look to you this morning, Jesus. And all this we pray in your name.